We're going to be reading from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, this was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Indeed, We have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Aaron. Appreciate it, brother. Good morning. My name is Drew Moss, and uh, I get to work with the college ministry here at Sunnybrook that we call The Table. Uh, I also have the opportunity to get to open up from God's Word with you today, to spend some time walking through that, and I'm excited to get to jump in there with you today. Uh, There is this story in in Mark chapter 4, and it's a story that I've heard Pretty much all my life, I've heard it thousands of times, and my guess is that if you have spent very much time growing up in church, that you've probably heard it thousands of times as well. But more recently, it's kind of grabbed my attention because it ends wrong. That's actually probably too strong of a way to say it. Uh, It's not that it ends wrong, it just ends in a way that you would not expect. It ends in a way that doesn't seem to fit the rest of the story. The story goes like this. One day, Jesus and his disciples go and get into a boat, as they often do in the Gospels. And when they get in that boat, they sail off across the Sea of Galilee, as they often do in the Gospels. And the Sea of Galilee is this lake up in the northern part of Israel that is famous, even to this day, for these storms that can pop up just seemingly out of nowhere. When wind and the cold air comes down off the eastern mountains and then mixes with the warm air hanging over the top of the lake, it creates these very violent storms, almost like that. 
And on this particular day, that thing happened. Jesus had gone and he had decided to nap and lay down in the stern of the boat. So he's sleeping, resting his eyes, and then all of a sudden, this storm just sweeps in. Now, this isn't a huge deal for the disciples because a number of them are fishermen. They've been here before. They know how this works. They know how to handle this. But it quickly becomes apparent that they don't know how to handle this one. But this storm is so big and so violent, and, and soon enough they begin to panic. They begin to fear for their lives, thinking this is probably it for them. And so one of them, in the course of this, goes and wakes up Jesus and goes, Jesus, get up. I, you need to know we're all about to die here. This may be your last moments. Get up here. And then the text says that Jesus stands up and kind of, you know, rubs the sleep out of his eyes, walks to the edge of the boat and puts hands up in the air and with just a few words, peace, be still shuts the whole thing down. And the rain ceases, and the wind stops blowing, and the waves go flat, and the sea turns to glass. And here's the part where the story gets a little bit weird, because you would expect in that moment that when Jesus does these things, that the disciples would all begin to celebrate, and that they would all be excited, and oh, thank you, Jesus, for saving our lives. We're alive. I can't believe we're alive. And they would hug each other, and they would laugh, and they would hoop and holler, and all those things. That's not what they do. You read the story, the story ends with them being more scared after Jesus calms the storm than they were in the middle of the storm. Mark tells us the very last verse of that chapter, the very last verse of that story, Mark 4, 41, says this, and they were terrified and asked one another, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. Today, after two months walking through the story of God, starting all the way back in the beginning in Genesis, walking through these high points in the story, these big moments in the scriptures in the Old Testament, today we finally arrive into the New Testament, specifically into the Gospels. And the Gospels are, are essentially one long, drawn-out answer to that question in Mark 4.41. Who then is this? Who is Jesus? That's what they're geared towards. That's what they're going to be answering in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, we're going to spend a few weeks here. We'll talk about the crucifixion of Jesus next week, and then we'll talk about the resurrection in the week after that. Today we're talking about the life and ministry of Jesus, the identity of Jesus, which still uh, covers quite a bit of ground. Uh, I, I actually added it up. I did the math here. And between the four Gospels, if you remove the chapters about the crucifixion and the resurrection, all the rest of them still makes up 78 different chapters of Scripture, which is a lot to cover in one two-hour sermon this morning, but we're going to try our best, okay? <laughs> 78 chapters to try and cover. They cannot be done all the way through. But... If I were to give like a good summary, try to give a summary, I think it would be hard to find a better one than the first 18 verses of John chapter 1 to encapsulate Jesus' identity and his mission in a few paragraphs. It's, it's done pretty well in John 1, and that's where we're going to be spending our time today. And as we cover John 1, it's going to become apparent pretty quickly that one of these things is not like the others, that this 
section of the story, this part is different from all the other parts that we have covered. And that is for these three specific reasons about the character in this story, that he is different than all the other characters that we've focused on. These, these three things about Jesus, and they're very similar. As a matter of fact, I would say they're overlapping. These three overlapping truths about Jesus, I'll just go ahead and give them to you now, and then we'll walk through them. The first is that Jesus is unique within the story of God. The second thing is that Jesus is central to the story of God. And then the third is that Jesus is the culmination of the story of God. He is unique, he is central, he is the culmination. Let's dive in with that first one. Jesus is unique. Do you know why the disciples at the end of Mark chapter 4 are more scared after Jesus stops the storm than they were in the middle of it? R.C. Sproul, a famous preacher and Bible scholar, uh, talks about this story, and he says it's because in that moment they realize that they are standing in the boat with something that they do not have a category for. So this is a a thing that all human beings do. It's just kind of part of our mind that we are always constantly, either consciously or often subconsciously, gauging our surroundings, looking at the things around us and putting those things into categories. Does that person seem friendly or antagonistic? Does that thing seem safe or dangerous? Is this location a nice place or a bad place? And we're constantly gauging the things that we see around us, coming into contact with, and putting it in different boxes and categories that we can make sense of to figure out, but the disciples realize as they stand in this boat that they don't have a category for Jesus. See, the storm, it's scary because it's powerful, and they know what a storm can do, but they do understand to some degree storms. They've got a box for storms, but this man, this man here who is a human being, and they know he's a human being because they've spent months with him. They've seen him walk and talk. They've seen him sweat. They've seen him sleep. They've seen him eat. They know that he's a human being, and yet this human being also controls weather patterns, has power over the forces of nature, and they don't got a box for that. They don't have a category to put that in, and that is unnerving to them. And there's a reason that they don't have a box to fit Jesus in. It's because Jesus is unlike any other person that has ever walked the earth. Jesus is unique. Here's what John tells us about him in the very opening words of his uh, book. John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word. Now stop. Every other part of our story tells about a person who steps onto the scene for a particular time and they uh, are, are active within a particular space and time of the story. They play their part and then they exit the stage as the story moves on. Every other person that we've talked about so far is within a specific time period and a specific place. But John says that this person that we're about to talk about encapsulates all of it, that he was there not just at the beginning but before the story even began. Next few words. And the word was with God, and the word was God. Stop. 
Every other part of the story that we have walked through so far involves the main character, that is God himself. He's the main character of the story. The main character interacting with a secondary human character, whether that be Adam and Eve, or whether that be Abraham, or Moses, or David, or Solomon. God, the divine character, interacting with the human character. Here's the first time in the story that the divine character and the human character are one. The word was with God, and the word was was God. He calls Jesus here repeatedly. He calls him the Word. Why? Why does he call Jesus the Word? More than likely, John is rooting this idea, this concept, in the Old Testament and in the understanding of God's Word within the Old Testament. The Word of the Lord, the Word of God was a very big deal in the scriptures and in the Old Testament. Ryan talked a lot about this last week, how significant, how powerful, how eminent God's word was amongst the people, what a big deal that was, and it was something that they looked to often. And actually, words just in general, anyone's words, are kind of an interesting concept, a fascinating idea. Tim Mackey talks about this from the Bible Project. He says, um, our words, like my words, are in a sense me. They are my thoughts. They are my ideas. They are what I think and I'm about being expressed out to other people. I am being expressed out to other people. And yet, also in the moment when I express those words out, they are also something that is distinct from me separate to a degree from me. Like you could record those words and put them on an audio device outside of me. You could put those words on paper and so they are me, but they are distinct from me. Words also have power. They have the ability when they are spoken out to change things, to do things, especially when the person speaking them has a level of authority, right? So in my own house, I can say to one of my kids, please set the table for dinner. And those words can cause the table to be set. It can cause things to be to, to be happening, but, but especially when the one who speaks them is God, who has authority and power over all things, when he says things, things happen. His words do and accomplish his purposes. And so this is what the word of God is like in the Old Testament. Bible scholar Edward Klink talks about the word here in John 1, and he says it is rooted in the Old Testament where the word is God's self-expression in creation, in revelation, and in salvation, right? So God speaks, let there be light, and the world is created. God speaks, and truth is revealed. God speaks, and life is given, and salvation comes to people through the word of God as it accomplishes things. And what John is saying here at the beginning of his book is that this word of God, this power by which God creates and reveals and saves is not some kind of force or thing. It's a person. It is his son who is one with God, but is a distinct person from God the Father. And we will see this play out in the very next few verses. Pay attention to what John says about this word and what it does. Verse 2, he was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. So through him, through this word, through Jesus, all things were created. In him is life. From him comes the light. None of these things, 
can be said about anyone else in the story or anyone else throughout all of history, only about Jesus. And we will see these truths play out throughout the gospel and throughout Jesus' lives as he does things that only God is supposed to be able to do, like calm storms, raise people to life, and he says things that only God is supposed to be able to say about himself, like that he is the I am, or that he could pronounce the forgiveness of sins, and when he pronounces the forgiveness, the scribes and the rulers say, you can't do that, only God can forgive sins, and Jesus goes, you're right, only God can forgive sins, and I pronounce this man's sins forgiven. And he does these things time and time again, showing that there is something different in him. And so what we see is that Jesus is not just better than all the other characters in the story. He's not just more heroic than David. He's not just more righteous than Abraham. He's not just uh, more holy than Moses. He is in a completely different category altogether from everyone else. And because... He is in that different category because he is God from the very beginning. That means that, number two, he is not just uh, unique in the story, he is central to the story. John continues here in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So here, John the Apostle, John the Gospel writer, introduces a new character into the story, and that is John the Baptist. He describes John the Baptist as a prophet sent from God, there on God's behalf. And and John the Baptist, we've talked about from this stage before, was a very, very big deal. It was a very big deal in his own day and time when thousands would flock out to hear him preach and teach and the crowds and the people loved him and honored him and the religious rulers and the political rulers feared him and the amount of influence that he had over the people. But it was not just a big deal in his own time. He's a big deal in the story. Matthew 11, Jesus himself will say about John the Baptist that of everyone who had ever been born up until this point, no one is greater than John the Baptist. Abraham, the father of the entire nation of Israel through whom God started this whole thing, not greater than John the Baptist. Moses, the giver of the law and the Old Testament covenant that the people followed, not greater than John the Baptist. David, the great king that everyone looked to and hoped for a Messiah who would fill his shoes, not greater than John the Baptist. And yet, John the Apostle says here, as great as John is, he is not the point. He is merely just one more witness to the one who is the point. John the Baptist will say about himself, I am not even worthy to stoop down and untie the straps of Jesus' sandals. That is how much greater he is than me. So there's this story in Luke 24 where these two guys go out on a journey takes place just a few days after Jesus is crucified at the hands of the Roman authorities and the hands of the Jewish authorities. And so these two men step out of Jerusalem and begin making the seven-mile journey northwest towards a small little village called Emmaus. And they are devastated. And they are confused. Devastated because these two men had dared to hope against hope 
that Jesus was the answer to all their prayers. That Jesus was the Messiah that they had been waiting for all these years, that they had been praying for, that they had been hoping for. And they had put all their eggs in this basket and they had kind of pushed their chips forward on Jesus. And then, two days ago, he gets crucified at the hands of the Roman and Jewish authorities. And that proves, at least to them, that they were wrong. That everything they were hoping for must not be true because the real Messiah, he's not going to die at the hands of the Gentiles. The real Messiah, he's not going to be rejected by the religious leaders. They're going to love him. They're going to adore him. So the fact that Jesus died must mean we were wrong. They're also confused because that very morning, some women from their group had gone to the tomb to prepare Jesus' body for burial. And when they get there, they, they found that the tomb was empty. And then Peter and John run to the tomb and they find it's empty. And so now they can't make heads or tails of this situation, what's happening. And these two men are walking along, discussing these things, when all of a sudden a third man, a stranger, walks up beside them and begins walking and talking. Now, Luke tells us that this stranger is Jesus, but they are unable to recognize him in this moment. And Jesus says to them, what are you guys talking about? And they stop. Are you serious? How do you not know? How do you not know what's gone on in Jerusalem in these last couple of days? Everybody knows what happened in Jerusalem. Jesus of Nazareth, the one that people were expecting to be the king, the Messiah, he just got crucified. And, and, and all of our hopes and dreams have kind of fallen apart. And yet now his tomb is empty and we don't know what to do this. How do you not know about that? And then it's Jesus' turn to turn towards them and say, how do you not know? How do you not know as you walk through the scriptures that this had to happen? How do you not know that the prophets prophesied that the Messiah must suffer? And then Luke tells us in, verse 20, or in chapter 24, verse 27, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Catch that. In all the scriptures, Jesus is saying here that he is not merely the central character of the Gospels or even of the New Testament. He is the central character of the entire story, front to back. All the scriptures and all human history centers around this one man, which is what makes the next couple verses of John 1 so tragic. John 1, verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. That right there, those, those little verses right there really are the life and ministry of Jesus summed up in four verses. This is something that we see over and over again. He came to the world, and the world did not receive him. His own people, uh, of whom he was meant to be the rightful ruler, the people of Israel, the king of them, they did not receive him. And yet, to the few that did, to those who did receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God. That's a great summary of Jesus' life and ministry here on this earth. And what we see play out through the Gospels is that Jesus, through his life and ministry, creates this fork in the road that everyone must deal with. 
That everyone, when they come to Jesus, has to go one direction or the other. There is no pleading the fifth on Jesus. There is no recusing yourself of a decision of what you think he is or a verdict on who you say he is. Everyone has to go one direction or the other. And this is true, by the way, not just for those in the Gospels. It is not just true for Jewish religious leaders and tax collectors and fishermen in the first century. It is also true today for American professionals and parents and college students and churchgoers in 2023. And here we need to pause for a moment to clarify what it means to receive Jesus. What John means by those words to receive him. Because if it is true that Jesus is central to the story of God, that he is central to human history, that Jesus is central to God's plan to redeem the whole world, and that means that I cannot receive him as anything less than central to my own life. And yet, there are many who have tried to do exactly that. There is a kind of Christianity, a pseudo-Christianity, what many people call a cultural Christianity that thrives in Bible Belt states like Oklahoma, that thrives in Bible Belt towns like Stillwater, in which people will use the language of receiving or accepting Christ. I accepted Christ when I was seven years old. I asked Christ into my heart when I was nine. I received Christ when I was about 13 years old. And they can use all the language of those things, but what they mean by accepting Christ is some kind of generic faith in which I mentally agree with all the truths about Jesus and even admire Jesus and even speak highly of Jesus, but I never fully submit myself to Jesus, one in which I seek to be a good person and attend church most of the time and make sure to raise our kids in church, one in which I even lift up biblical and Christian values in the public sphere, one in which I will vote my values every year when elections come around and all of those things, and one in which I ultimately do not concede in Christ's claims on my life. One in which I give Jesus very little say over my finances or over my free time or over those little pet sins that I run back to time and time again because, you know, it's just between me and myself and it's not really hurting anyone. The thing is, though, that the real Jesus, the one who stands at the center of the story, does not leave us that option. Look at the way that Jesus talks about himself throughout the Gospels. Listen, you think calming a storm in the middle of a boat makes people uncomfortable? You should hear some of the things Jesus says about himself in Matthew 10, 37 through 38. The one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? You cannot call me Lord Jesus. Do not call me your Lord and Savior if you are not willing to submit to me as Lord Jesus says. Mark 8, 34 to 35, if anyone wants to follow after me, if anyone wants to be a Christian, 
Let him deny himself. Let him take the things that he wants most in life and put those down at the bottom and then pick up the things that I want most in life and put those up at the top. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. And a person does not say things like this unless they believe themselves to be the center. And there are many people who back then found these words too hard and demanding. And there are many people today who find these words too hard and demanding, too strong, too harsh, and yet they don't want to flat out reject Jesus because they believe these things about him. They believe he was the son of God. They believe he died for their sins, and they don't want to go against their childhood faith that they were raised in, and they don't want to lose the community that they've had around them all their life in church, and so they don't flat out reject Jesus. They still want to receive him. They just choose to receive a different kind of Jesus, one that's not so demanding, one that fits inside my box and therefore fits my life a little bit better. But I would say that this is no less a sin and no less a tragedy than full-on rejection. And when you miss the real Jesus, you miss all of Christianity. You're not just missing the most important part of the story. You are missing the one who brings all the other parts together. And that is because of the third thing we see about Jesus, that he is the culmination of the story of God. Everything else in the scriptures finds its deepest meaning and its truest fulfillment in him. And we will see this touched on in the final verses of our passage today. John 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And we need to pause right here for just a minute. Because John 1, verse 14, is one of the most important verses in all the Bible. And is one of the key differences between Christianity and every other religion. This belief that God himself came down to us and lived as one of us so that he could save us. As Tim Keller once said, and I've quoted him this exact quote from here before, but it's worth doing again and again. The, the difference between Christianity and all the other religions is that every other religion starts with a man saying, I have come to help you find God. Whereas Christianity starts with a man saying, I am God, come to find you. And this is what is argued in John 1, 14, but, but what's very fascinating for our purposes today is the exact word that John uses to describe this, pro, uh, this, this process. It says that Jesus came and he dwelt among us. Literally, the word there in the Greek is not just dwelt. The word is that he came and tabernacled among us. He tabernacled, which means that John is throwing us back all the way, not just to 1 Kings 8 with the building of the temple, but all the way back to Exodus, to the prototype of the temple where God had the tabernacle set up. And through the tabernacle, he came and dwelled in the midst of his people with the camping of the tribes all the way around. And there in the center sat the tabernacle, God himself hovering over the Ark of the Covenant, there, his presence over the mercy seat, and it was this beautiful thing, and it was this amazing thing, and it was also incomplete. Because of the holiness of God, and because of the sinfulness of man, there was always a barrier there. 
No one except for the priests could go inside the tabernacle. And then once you got into the tabernacle, nobody but nobody except for the high priest one day a year could go behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant sat. And so what you had there is this situation where God was near his people, but he was not fully with his people. And now what John is arguing is that what was begun here, what was started here, what was desired and chased after here comes to its fullest completion here comes to its truest meaning here as the Son of God himself comes and lives with us and then by his death will create full access to God as the temple veil tears, showing that there is nothing else to separate the presence of God from the presence of people who are washed in the blood of Jesus. And then John continues because there's more. Verse 15, John the Baptist testified concerning him and exclaimed, This was the one of whom I said, The one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So John says here that through Moses, God gave us the law. And the law was a good thing. It was a gift. It itself was a grace from God because in the law, we are able to see what God is like. We are able to see his character and how we can align our lives up with his character. And yet the law is incomplete because the law has no ability to save me. The law can tell me how I ought to live, but it cannot enable me to live in that way. It cannot change my heart. Jesus comes, though, and Jesus brings not just law. Jesus brings grace and truth, the kind of truth that saves a person, the kind of truth that makes people into a new kind of people that are his. And then he says this in the very last verse, verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. This is one of the truths that is expressed in the scriptures over and over again that no one can fully see God in all of his glory. And that is because his great holiness, his great glory, our sinfulness and our finite nature that we couldn't handle it. Even Moses, the giver of the law, when he asked to see God in all his glory, God said, no, you can't see me in all my glory. No one can see me in all my glory. And so all he gives Moses is this little glimpse of kind of the tail end, this glimpse of almost like the aftermath of his glory as it passes by. And and, and yet God wants to make himself known to people. God wants to reveal himself. He wants to be known. And so he gives his prophets and his writers to come and speak the truth about him to try and reveal what God is like and who he is. And it's good and it's wonderful, but it's not complete. It cannot fully describe all of who God is. And what we see here, though, is that what the prophets and what the scriptures were revealing in part, Jesus reveals in fullness. As the writer of Hebrews will say, long ago, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. And in these last days, he has spoke to us by his son, who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. But you see, Jesus, he's not just the culmination of the tabernacle. He's not just the culmination of the law. He's not just the culmination of the prophets. He's the culmination of all of it. Everything that we have seen in this story so far, all of it is a mere shadow that is meant to point us to the greater reality that is Jesus Christ. 
All of it is summed up and points its way to him. He is the agent of creation and the one true image bearer of Genesis 1. He is the snake crusher of Genesis 3. He is the true substitutionary sacrifice hinted at in Genesis 22. He is the fulfillment of the law in Exodus, the forever king promised in 2 Samuel 7. He is the tabernacle itself come to live among us. He is the maker of new hearts that enable people to follow God. And he is the redemption promised by the prophets. Every Everything God has promised, everything God has brought into existence came into existence to point to him, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1. For every one of God's promises is yes in Jesus. Every good thing hinted at in the law, every hope held out to us by the prophets, every blessing and joy promised throughout the scriptures, all of that comes to us through Jesus and only through Jesus. It does not come through a generic faith in God, through believing in God generally or through being spiritual or being religious or attending church. It comes through receiving Jesus, the one and only Jesus, the central Jesus. And everyone at some point must decide what they will do with this Jesus including everyone in this room. So I don't know where exactly you're at today. Maybe, maybe you're in here in this room and you're fairly new to all this and you're still really kind of unsure of what you think of this whole Christianity thing and this whole Jesus thing. And if that's you today, I want you to know we're thrilled that you're here. And I hope, I hope you keep coming. I hope you'll come here about this stuff more and more. But my hope for you is that you would see that this Jesus is unique that he is the one and only, that there is no other way to know the God that you were made for. There is no other way to have access to the God who created you in his image other than Jesus who is the way and the truth and the life. I hope you'll see that today. Maybe you're here in this room and you accepted Jesus a long time ago, but you realize that the Jesus you accepted is not the real Jesus, but instead a Jesus that fits in your pocket. A Jesus that you can carry around and make life a little bit better and, and make things run a little bit smoother for you. And my hope for you today is that you will trade that Jesus in for the real one. That you'll trade him in for the Jesus who sits at the center of all of God's plan and is central to everything. That you will make him central to your own life. Maybe you're in here today and, and you're all in on Jesus. And you've fully committed your life to him, to the real Jesus, to the true Jesus. And yet if you're honest at times, it's hard. It is hard to continue to deny yourself. It is hard to continue to put him and what he wants above what you want. And if that's you today, my hope for you is that you will be able to see him for who he is, the beautiful, incredible culmination of all that God has for us. That you will be able to see that all the blessings and gifts and promises of God made to you are yours through him. There's this story takes place in Matthew 26. It happens in the middle of Jerusalem on a chilly April night where Jesus gathers together in this room, this, this secret room because the Jewish authorities are looking for him on this night and he gathers together with his disciples to celebrate one of the most significant events in the Old Testament, one of the most significant events in Israel's history, the Passover. The moment, the day, 
when God came and rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, set them all free. And he did this at kind of the heart of the Passover celebration is this spilling of blood, this, this lamb, this pure and spotless uh, lamb who, who spills his own blood so that they can avoid the judgment that is coming down on Egypt. And it does not come down on the Israelites. And through that, they are set free and they are rescued. And it's there in the middle of this Passover meal that Jesus is sharing as he reclines around the table with his disciples that he chooses to tell them that that great meal was pointing to something bigger. That 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 meal, that great celebration, that great rescue was a shadow of something greater. That in the next couple days, God is about to rescue his people from a slave driver much harsher than Egypt. That God is about to set people free from the sin that has dominated and ruled their lives, all of their lives. That God is about to set people free from the fear and the tyranny of death and that he's going to do it through Jesus through his own death on the cross as the pure and spotless lamb who will spill his blood to save and rescue God's people forevermore, giving them a new kind of covenant, one that will last forever, a new covenant with a new kingdom full of people with brand new hearts that Jesus gives to them by his own Holy Spirit. And so we, the people of God, every week for thousands of years, have come together to retell the story, to relive that story, the whole story, the story that all of it pointing to this one Jesus who rescued us, who set us free, who made us new, and we do that over bread and wine. And so, brothers and sisters, this is Christ's body given for you. Let's take and eat. This cup is the blood of the brand new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. Let's drink together. And now let's join together in celebrating and singing to the one unique central Jesus.